Part Four, Chapters Five and Six of Oblomov by Ivan Alexandrovich Goncharov, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Davidson. Five years have passed, and more than one change has taken place in the Viaborg quarter. The street which used to lead, unenclosed, to Oblomov's humble abode is now lined with villas. In the midst of them a tall stone government office rears its head between the sunlight and the windows of that quiet, peaceful little house which the sun's rays once warmed so cheerfully. The house itself has grown old and crazy. It wears a dull, neglected look like that of a man who is unshaven and unwashed. In places the paint is peeled away, and in others the gutters are broken. To the latter is due the fact that pools of dirty water stand in the courtyard, and that thrown across them is a piece of old planking. Should a visitor approach the wicket, the old watchdog no longer leaps nimbly to the extent of his chain, but gives tongue hoarsely and lazily from the interior of his kennel. And within the house what changes have taken place? Over it there reigns a different housewife to the former one, and different children sport and play. Again is seen about the premises the lean countenance of Tarantiev, rather than the kindly, careless features of Alexeyev, while of Zakhar and Anisia also there is not a sign discernible. A new cook performs, rudely and unwillingly, the quiet behests of Agafya Matyevna, and our old friend Akulina, her apron girded around her middle, washes up, as formerly, the domestic crockery and pots and pans. Lastly, the same old sleepy dvornik whiles away the same old idle life in the same old den by the gates, and at a given hour each morning, as well as always at the hour of the evening meal, there flashes past the railings of the fence the figure of Agafia's brother, clad, summer and winter alike, in galoshes, and always carrying under his arm a large bundle of documents. But what of Oblomov? Where is he? Where? Under a modest urn in the adjoining cemetery his body rests among the shrubs. All is quiet where he is lying. Only a lilac tree, planted there by a loving hand, waves its boughs to and fro over the grave, as it mingles its scent with the sweet, calm odor of wormwood. One would think that the angel of peace himself were watching over the dead man's slumbers. Despite his wife's ceaseless and devoted care for every moment of his existence, the prolonged inertia, the unbroken stillness, the sluggish gliding from day to day, had ended by quietly arresting the machine of life. Thus Oblomov met his end, to all appearances, without pain, without distress, even as stops a watch which its owner has forgotten to wind up. No one witnessed his last moments, or heard his expiring gasp. A second stroke of apoplexy occurred within a year of the first, and, like its precursor, passed away favorably. Later, however, Oblomov became pale and weak, took to eating little and seldom walking in the garden, and increased in moodiness and taciturnity as the days went on. 
At times he would even burst into tears, for he felt death drawing near, and was afraid of it. One or two relapses occurred, from which he rallied, and then Agafya Matyevna entered his room one morning, to find him resting on his deathbed, as quietly as he had done in sleep, the only difference being that his head had slipped a little from the pillow, and that one of his hands was convulsively clutching the region of the heart, in a manner which suggested that the pain had there centered itself until the circulation of the blood had stopped forever. After his death, Agafya Matyevna's sister-in-law, Irina Patalievna, assumed control of the establishment. That is to say, she arrogated to herself the right to rise late in the morning, to drink three cups of coffee for breakfast, to change her dress three times a day, and to confine her housewifery energies to seeing that her gowns were starched to the utmost degree of stiffness. More she would not trouble to undertake, and as before Agafya Matyevna remained the active pendulum of the domestic clock. Not only did she superintend the kitchen and the dining-room, and prepare tea and coffee for the entire household, but also she did the general mending, and supervised the linen, the children, Akulina, and the dvornik. Why was this? Was she not Madame Oblomov, and the proprietress of a landed estate? Might she not have maintained a separate and independent establishment? and have wanted for nothing, and have been at no one's beck and call? What had led her to take upon her shoulders the burden of another's housekeeping, the care of another's children, and all those petty details which women usually assume only at the call of love, or in obedience to sacred family ties, or for the purpose of earning a morsel of daily bread? Where, too, were Zachar and Anisia, now become by every right of law her servants. Where, too, was the little treasure, André, which Oblomov had bequeathed to her? Where, finally, were her children by her first husband? Those children were now all provided for. That is to say, Vanya had finished his schooling and entered government service, his sister had married the manager of a government office, and little André had been committed to the care of Stoltz and his wife who looked upon him as a member of their own family. Never for a moment did Agafya Matyevna mentally compare his lot, or place it on a level equal with that of her first children, although unconsciously it may be she allotted them all an equal place in her heart. In her opinion, the little André's upbringing, mode of life, and future career stood divided by an immeasurable gulf from the fortunes of Vanya and his sister. "'What are they?' she would say to herself when she called to see André. "'They are children born of the people, whereas this one was born a young baron.' Then she would caress the boy, if not with actual timidity, at all events with a certain touch of caution, and add to herself with something like respect, "'What a white skin he has! "'Tis almost transparent!' and what tiny hands and feet too and what silky hair is just like his dead father consequently she was the more ready to accede to stoltz's request when he asked her that he stoltz should educate the youngster 
since she felt sure that Stoltz's household was far more the lad's proper place than was her own establishment, where he would have been thrown among her grimy young nephews. Clad in black, she would glide like a shadow from room to room of the house, opening and shutting cupboards, sewing, making lace, but doing everything quietly and without the least sign of energy. When spoken to, she would reply as though to do so were an effort. Moreover, her eyes no longer glanced swiftly from object to object, as they had done in the old days. Rather, they remained fixed in a sort of ever-concentrated gaze. Probably they had assumed that gaze during the hour when she had stood looking at her dead husband's face. That the light of her life was fast flickering out before going out, that God had breathed his breath into her existence and taken it away again, and that her sun had shone brilliantly and was setting forever, she clearly understood. Yes, that sun was setting forever, but not before she had learnt the reason why she had been given life, and the fact that she had not lived in vain. Greatly she had loved, and to the full. She had loved Oblomov as a lover, as a husband, and as a baron, but around her there was no one to comprehend this, wherefore she kept her grief the more closely locked in her own bosom. Only next winter, when Stoltz came to town, she ran to see him, and to gaze hungry at little André, whom she covered with caresses. Presently she tried to say something, to thank Stoltz, and to pour out before him all that had been accumulating in her heart in the absence of an outlet. Such words he would have understood perfectly, had they been uttered. But the task was beyond her. She could only throw herself upon Olga, glue her lips to her hand, and burst into such a torrent of scalding tears that perforce Olga wept with her, and Stoltz, greatly moved, hastened from the room. All three had now a common bond of sympathy, that bond being the memory of Oblomov's unsullied soul. More than once Stoltz and Olga besought the widow to come and live with them in the country, but always she replied, "'Where I was born and have lived my life, there I must also die.' Likewise, when Stoltz proposed to render to her an account of his management of the Oblomovcom property, she returned him the income therefrom, with a request that he should lay it by for the benefit of little André. "'Tis his, not mine.' she said. He is the baron, and I will continue to live as I have always done. CHAPTER Six. One day, about noon, two gentlemen were walking along a pavement in the Veerborg quarter, while behind them a carriage quietly paced. One of the gentlemen was Stoltz, the other a literary friend of his, a stout individual with an apathetic face and sleepy meditative eyes. As they drew level with the church, Mass had just ended, and the congregation was pouring into the street. In front of them a knot of beggars was collecting a rich and varied harvest. "'I wonder where those medicants come from,' said the literary gentleman, glancing at the reapers. "'Out of sundry nooks and corners, I suppose,' replied the other carelessly. "'That is not what I meant. What I meant is how have they descended to their present position of beggars?' 
Have they come to it suddenly or gradually, for a good reason or a bad one? Why are you so anxious to know? Are you contemplating writing a Mysteries of Petrograd? Perhaps I am, the literary gentleman explained with an indolent yawn. Then here is the chance for you. Ask any one of them, and for the sum of a rouble, he will sell you his story, which jotted down you could resell to the nobility. For instance, take this old man here. He looks a good example of the normal type. Hi, old man, we want you. The old man turned his head at the summons, doffed his cap, and approached the two gentlemen. Good sirs, he whined, pray help a poor man who has been wounded in thirty battles and grown old in war. It is Zakhar, exclaimed Stoltz in astonishment. It is you, Zakhar, is it not? But Zakhar said nothing. Then suddenly he shaded his eyes from the sun, and staring intently at Stoltz, muttered, Pardon me, your honor, I do not recognize you. I am nearly blind. What, you have forgotten your old friend, the Baron Stoltz? The other asked reproachfully. "'Dear, dear, is it really your honor? My bad sight has got the better of me.' Catching Stoltz impetuously by the hand, the old man imprinted kiss after kiss upon the skirt of his coat. "'The Lord himself has permitted a poor lost wretch to see a joyful day,' he said, half laughing, half crying, over his face, and particularly over his nose there had spread a purplish tinge, while his head was almost completely bald, and his whiskers, though still long, looked so matted and entangled as to resemble pieces of felt wherein snowballs have been wrapped. As for his clothing, it consisted of an old faded cloak with one of the lapels missing, and a pair of down-at-heel galoshes. In his hands was a cap from which the fur had become worn away. "'Ah, good sir,' he repeated, "'heaven has indeed granted me joy for to-day's festival. But why are you in this state?' Stoltz inquired. Are you not ashamed of yourself? Yes, your honor. But what else could I do? And Zakhar heaved a profound sigh. How else was I to live? So long as Anisia was alive, I had not to go wandering about like this, for I was given bite and soup whenever I wanted it. But she died of cholera, heaven rest her soul, and her brother straightway refused to support me saying that I was nothing but an old hanger-on. From Michey Andreitch, Tarantyev, too, I received shameful abuse, and neither of them would, you believe it, Your Honor, ever give me a morsel of bread. Indeed, had it not been for the Barina, God bless her, and Zakhar crossed himself, I should long ago have perished of the cold. But for a long while she gave me a bit of clothing and as much bread as I could eat and a place by the stove at night. Then they took to raiding her on my account. So at last I left the house, to wander whither my eyes might lead me. This is the second year that I have been dragging out this miserable existence. "'But why did you not go and seek a situation?' Stoltz inquired. "'Where was I to get one at this time of day, Your Honor? True, I tried for two, but was unsuccessful. Things are not what they used to be.' Everything is changed for the worse. Nowadays masters require their lackeys to look respectable, and the gentry no longer keep their halls chock-full of footmen. Indeed, tis seldom that you will find so many as two footmen in a house. Yes, he went on, the gentry actually take off their own boots. 
They have even gone so far as to invent a machine to do it with. Evidently the idea cut Zakhar to the heart. Yes, he repeated, our gentry are a shame and a disgrace to the country. They are fast coming to rack in ruin. A sigh of profound regret followed. At one place, presently he resumed, I did obtain a situation. Twas with a German merchant who engaged me to be his hall lackey. After a while, however, he sent me to serve in the pantry. Now is that my proper business? One day I was carrying some crockery across the room on a tray, and the floor happened to be smooth and slippery, and down I fell, and the tray and the crockery with me. So I was turned out of doors. Next an old countess took a fancy to my looks. He is of respectable appearance, she said to herself, and added me to her staff of Swiss lackeys. The post was a light one, and bid fair to be permanent, too. All that I had to do was to sit as solemnly as possible on a chair, to cross one leg over the other, and when any rascal called, not to answer him, but just to grunt and send the fellow away, or else give him a box on the ear. Of course, to the gentry one had to behave differently, just to wave one's staff like this. Zachar gave an illustration of what he meant. As I say, twas an easy job, and the lady, God bless her, was not over-difficult to please. But one day she happened to peep into my room, and to see there a bug. With that she bristled up and shrieked as though it had been I who invented bugs. When was a household ever without a bug? So the next time she passed me, she pretend that I smelled of liquor, and dismissed me. "'Yes, then you smell of it now, and very strongly,' remarked Stoltz. "'To my sorrow, I suppose so,' whined Zachar, wrinkling his brow bitterly. "'Well, then I tried to get a coachman's job, and took service with a gentleman, but one day I had my feet frostbitten, for I was over-old and weak for the job. And another day the brute of a horse fell down and nearly broke my ribs. And another day I ran over an old woman and got taken to the police station.' "'Well, well, instead of drinking and getting yourself into trouble, come to my house, and I will give you a corner there, until it is time for us to return to the country. Do you hear?' "'Yes, your honor. Yes, but—but—' but, Zakhar sighed again. "'I would rather not leave these parts. You see, the grave is here, the grave where my old patron is lying.' Zakhar sobbed. "'Only today I have been there to commend his soul to God.' What a baron the Lord God has taken from us! T'would have been good for us if he could have lived another hundred years. Yes. Only today I have been visiting his grave. Whenever I am near the spot, I go and sit beside it and shed tears. Ah, such tears! And sometimes, too, when all is quiet, I seem to hear him calling to me once more. Zakhar! Zakhar! And the shivers go running down my back. Never lived there such a baron as he, and how fond of yourself he was, your honor. May the Lord remember him when the heavenly kingdom shall come. You ought to see our little André, said Stoltz. If you like, you can have charge of him. And he handed the old man some money. Yes, I will come. How could I not come when it is to see little André Ilyich? By this time he must be grown into a tall young gentleman. What joy the Lord has reserved for me this day! Yes, I will come, your honor, and may God send you good health, and many a long year of life. But it was after a departing carriage that Zachar was dispatching his benedictions. Did you hear the old beggar's story? Stoltz asked of his companion. 
Yes, who was the Oblomov whom he mentioned? He was Oblomov. More than once I have spoken to you of him. Ah, I think I remember the name, yes. He was a friend and comrade of yours, was he not? What became of him? He came through rack and ruin, though for no apparent reason. As he spoke, Stoltz sighed heavily, then added, His intellect was equal to that of his fellows. His soul was as clear, as bright as glass. His disposition was kindly, and he was a gentleman to the core, yet he... he fell. Wherefore? What was the cause? The cause, re-echoed Stoltz. The cause was the disease of Oblomovka. The disease of Oblomovka? queried the literary gentleman in some perplexity. What is that? Some day I will tell you. For the moment leave me to my thoughts and memories. Hereafter you shall write them down, for they might prove of value to someone. In time Stoltz related to his friend what herein is to be found and recorded. The End End of Part 4 Chapter 6 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com End of Oblomov by Ivan Alexandrovich Goncharov Translated by C. J. Hogarth